0: God's plan for a healthy church I study through the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians so we're in a continued study but don't let that discourage you that if you've not been here you won't know where we are I, I believe that anytime you open the word of God you read verse by verse and study that uh, there's application there's encouragement there's admonition there's all the things that are supposed to occur regardless of whether you've been in with this from the past one of the things I love um, about uh, antiquity and, and archaeology is the study of sundials and um, Many of you know that I like Egypt. I I have studied Egypt and Egypt's history, but uh, sundials even predate Egypt. They've been around really for thousands of years prior to the development of the mechanical clock. Perhaps the earliest mention of the sundial, though, is in the books of Isaiah 38 and 2 Kings 20. You may remember this, but it's referring to the steps of Ahaz. Do you remember that story? And... um, what's going on there is uh, the Lord said he would heal Hezekiah of his illness and give him 15 more years of life. And then Hezekiah said, what kind of sign, uh, the Lord said, what kind of sign would you like so that you would know that I'm going to do this? Would you like the sun to go forward or back? And Hezekiah had said, um, let it go back. And so the words say the Lord caused the marker to read 10 steps back. And there are many, and I'm one of them that think that the way that was set up is that they could tell time by uh, those steps. And so what happened was the Lord moved the time back. So he would be affirmed that he was going to get 15 more years of life. There's uh, a number of examples of early sundials. There's one from the Valley of the Kings, which I have on a slide behind me. Um, it was likely used to measure the work of the work hours of Hebrew slaves. Uh, it's about that time period where they discovered it. Uh, it took a while for people to figure out how to orientate sundials. You may not know this, but uh, sundials oriented east and west follow the Earth's orbit around the sun. Uh, they, um, Depending on the latitude... Uh, The hours then registered may be shorter in one season and longer in the other, obviously. Later versions, though, began to orientate with the poles. And as they orientated with the poles and allowed for a curve there in the sundial, that allowed for more constant measurement and consistent throughout the year. And so it's been cool to see how that all uh, comes to to be. But in the modern day, architects have really turned sundials into art. A Jantur Mantur sundial in India is 88 feet tall. Taipei 101 skyscraper in Taiwan, which was the tallest building in the world until 2010, is connected to a park below it that is set up to mark the afternoon time with movements of the building's shadow. So that's pretty cool. But um, regardless of of uh, when they were built or their size, the obvious key to a sundial is what? The sun. Sunshine. I mean, if you think about that, uh, when the moonlight shines on it or a torch or a flashlight shines on it, it's going to show the wrong time. And so uh, its orientation to the sun has to be precise. And in some respects, as we think about that, it's really analogous to conscience, which has been Paul's topic for this section. Confidence in conscience is dependent on its relationship to the Word of God. we've said that over and over again. Your conscience is only going to inform you about the highest Uh, with the highest thing that it's been informed by, and we've told you over and over again that your conscience has to be informed by the Word of God. The wrong source of light, if you will, uh, for the conscience is uh, maybe being informed by the world or a wrong orientation to the Word of God, uh, attitude towards the Word, random times spent in the Word, so you're not really consistent uh, in the Word. Those kinds of things are reading intermittently or constantly listening to critics, which is something Job could have done. Will cause the sundial of conscience to read the wrong time and it'll be uh, unreliable. And so, when we were together last time, we set ourselves to understanding Paul's instructions on how to have confidence in conscience as it evaluates how you do your ministry and what you do in ministry, which has a direct connection to his previous topic that we just finished of conscience, uh, of being confident in judgment, knowing that there's going to be a judgment for. Uh, all believers, he moves on from that and says, listen, if you want to live consistently so that your conscience is clear, which is going to reflect very well then in that day of judgment, then there's some things you have to do. And we've given you some handholds, waypoints, if you will, that have helped you understand that. And he moved from, really, as you think about the judgment, from how to know if you're building with the right materials to, and this has been our, our topic from last week and this week, how to plan your life ministry in order to persuade those in your charge of the importance of that future ministry and a future meeting with the Lord. So Paul shares his heart. It's a very familiar topic, and he his own experience, and we get to see this, um, and he shares uh, how he has interacted with his ministry over the years. And we get to learn again how to live in such a way that our conscience can be clear and we can be confident in the sum of our ministry. So he says in verse 11, this is, I think, if you're thinking about, okay, how do I make a change in course? If you thought about the judgment and we went through confidence and judgment, you thought, well, maybe I'm not where I need to be and you want to make a change in course. This is the logical next step. This is, okay, how do I need to live on a daily basis? What do I need to be thinking about on a daily basis so that I'm going to begin to build it with the right materials and teach others to do that same thing? Look at verse 11, if you would, of chapter 5. Or read all the way through uh, verse 15. So picking up, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. Verse 12, we are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, so that you'll have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. Verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this. That one died for all, therefore all died, verse 15, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And all those things go together, and you can see that as we uh, kind of read that and allow the Holy Spirit to go to work through his word. Now, we mark several important waypoints uh, in these verses that we've labeled as confidence and conscience principles, and that's kind of how we work our way through the word. I encourage you to do the same thing when you study, find the main The main emphasis of the passage and then the principles that are being uh, given and then begin to assimilate those. That's how you interact with the word of God in a way that's going to make you different. So I want to cover what we've covered already just very quickly by way of review. We've noted uh, many times as we've studied the uh, the New Testament that um, the final day of reckoning is the major motivation for all that Paul does. And that was our first confidence and conscience principle. Paul recognizes as we read that passage, therefore knowing the fear of the Lord, he recognizes Uh, that his whole life and ministry will come under God's scrutiny. And we need to recognize that as well. Your whole life and and all that you've done is going to come under God's scrutiny. So if you want to have a good conscience for the future, let your ministry be motivated by a reverential awe of that meeting. A reverential awe, a fear of the Lord, persuading men because there's going to be a time when all of you, everything that you've done is going to come under the Lord's scrutiny. Now we notice that I fear of the Lord. That Paul's motivation here uh, is to maintain a good conscience and and point out his sincerity and his integrity over the course of his ministry. But what does that motivate Paul to do? Well, it motivates Paul to persuade men, and that seems to be the key verse here. And so uh, there seems to be uh, really takes us to our second confidence and conscience principle. And this is it: be sure that the ministry you have. And here's the change from building with the right material to moving to how you're helping others understand how to do this. So this you're motivated by the fear of the Lord of what? Of this meeting, this reverential awe, this future meeting. And because of that, you persuade men to what? You persuade men, you prepare them for that future judgment. You recognize, you let them recognize that this is an important uh, point that's going to come. It's, it'll be the main thing that you're concerned about as it comes. So be living in such a way that you're going to be able to build with things uh, that last. And that seems to be the key phrase. It takes a second confidence and cons- conscience principle. That is part of the integrity of your ministry. So let your words reveal then a genuine concern for that future appointment. And as you do that, you may be criticized for saying hard things. Uh, You may be criticized because people think you just worship the Bible because you're so committed to what it says. And I've had people tell me that. Uh, You may be criticized for not doing everything uh, some want you to do, but you are doing the right thing. And that's the rest of the verse 11. He lets them know that's exactly what he did. He says this, we, uh, look at verse 11 if you would, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. So he says, listen, regardless of how you may have criticized me, of what, what people may think or do, you can turn off that center one if you want, it'll stop blinking. He wants them to know that he's genuine. His primary focus has been to prepare them for this coming day, and his integrity as a minister is intact. So Paul says, listen, I didn't tickle your ears. Uh, you know, my purpose was not to affirm you every time we came together and make you feel good about yourself. That wasn't my main concern, see? My main purpose, uh, my main desire was to persuade you to live accordingly, see? That there's this future meeting and my main purpose was to persuade you to live accordingly. And that really is our third principle of, by way of encouragement. God keeps track of that type of genuine ministry. So as you set yourself, as you set yourself to persuade men because of that fear of the Lord, you then... Uh, uh, you are connected then to this idea that God keeps track of this genuine type of ministry, and it's important. That's the point he's making when he says, uh, we are made manifest to God. Paul pulls you in and says, listen, when you set the level of genuineness and integrity in ministry to this level, God keeps track of that, see? Yeah, Paul says, God knows me. I am manifest to him. He, he knows what I do. He knows my heart. He knows my integrity. And Paul says, and what I'm concerned about is that you understand the purpose of my ministry like God knows it. And so he says this, and I hope, he says, that we are made manifest also in your consciences. So not only you know before the Lord I'm not guilty of anything that violates my conscience, but we hope at some point that we're going to be made manifest in your conscience. So Paul says regardless then of of uh of what you may say, how you may gossip about me, uh, my hope is that you or know or will know my true motives. That was our confidence and conscience principle number four that that uh, you always hope for these little victories, you, you, the movement of people uh, to the right direction as it relates to their conduct. That's what you labor for. You watch for that. Paul was watching for that. He, someday that he wants them to make uh, to manifest also in their own consciences that Paul's doing the right thing. You hope that's going to be the case, and and so you labor to that end. And to review that motive to see people move in that right direction, laboring in such a way in their own ministry that they're going to lay up things that are going to last. That's going to build material with material, building material that lasts for you, see. Now, this hope was always that uh, the labor he put in would result in spiritual fruit. That's our hope. As you do ministry, you want that ministry to result in spiritual fruit uh, for people. And we saw some illustrations of Paul's comments to other churches. It helped us really see Paul's al- always feared for the churches lest he, and you've read this in Paul's uh, letters, lest he labored over them in vain, right? You see that constantly. Ephesians, you see it in Galatians. Thessalonians, he wanted to see spiritual fruit. He wanted to see movement towards a lifetime of building a spiritual building that would stand the test. And on that future day, he doesn't want them to end up with just wood, hay, and straw. And he he even regularly evaluated himself. It wasn't like he was just saying to the church, "Hey, I'm watching you, and I'm concerned that you're you're moving away from sound teaching, and I labored over you in vain." He was also motivated on his own that his own actions were fully informed by right things. Philippians chapter two, verse sixteen. Uh, you, you remember this, He's, he says, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I'll have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Uh, what, he wanted to know that what he done, done, he did it correctly uh, for the right reasons and with the right source. See, the light he was oriented to was the word of God, holding fast the word of life so that on the day of Christ I'll have reason to glory. So his orientation was correct, so the time was correct, see. He was reflecting correctly on him. So Paul was building a spiritual house of his own. So he wasn't just concerned about theirs. He knew that he was building and he was, he was tolling so that those under his care could build with the right materials too. And it's important to remember, it's not that Paul didn't sin or that you or I with a fully informed conscience don't sin. It's just that he responded to the prompting of the Holy Spirit as he should. See, what, what we wanted, we don't want to get in the habit of is just on a regular basis sinning, violating the Word of God, something the Word of God tells you to do, you're not doing, something it tells you not to do, you're doing, and you're regularly doing that, and you're not coming to the throne of grace and saying, Lord, forgive me, confessing your sins, and seeing that the Lord is faithful and just to forgive. So you're violating that, uh, that fellowship with the Lord and quenching the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. We don't want to get there, see? So it's not like Paul didn't sin, it's not like that you and I, with a fully informed conscience, don't sin, see? It's just that you're responding to what the Holy Spirit says and, and we respond in the correct way. And so you could have then confidence in the future that his conscience would be clear, Paul could, and you can as well, see. We also saw some habits that lead to a faulty conscience and I'll just touch on them briefly because they're so important. Beloved, um, Teaching people things that they should do but not doing them yourself. That's a habit that will betray your conscience and take away the confidence you could have for the future. Saying things but not doing them is a lack of integrity. It's being divided. It's having one set of ethics by which you live and another set of ethics by which you speak, and it should be just obvious that's a big no-no, and that's going to lead to a faulty conscience. That's going to lead to a life at the end where you didn't build with what you thought you were building with, and it also betrays that you, know, you were not uh, prompted by the fear of the Lord persuading men. If you were prompted by the fear of the Lord, there wouldn't be this big conflict about what you're saying and what you're doing, Okay? Secondly, doing things for the purpose of the praise of people, uh, or that people will know that you did them. And can I just say this? Social media makes that really easy. Okay, and I know some of you do this. Okay, and you need to remember this: when you do something, when you do something for someone, make sure it isn't so that you can put it on social media and tell them that you did it. Tell everybody that you did it. Okay. I mean, I'm not against you know media uh, you know media telling what the ministry is that's going on. But make sure that wasn't your motivation. Everybody knew that you did it, okay? Because the only person that mattered, that knew what you did, was the Lord, and He already knows. He doesn't need Facebook to tell everybody, okay? But if your motivation, so the first one, if your motivation is, if you're teaching one thing and doing something else, that's a big no-no. Secondly, if you're doing it for the purpose of the praise of people or that people will know that you did it, that's going to betray your conscience and undermine your integrity and take away the confidence you could have for the future. And later, Jesus pointed out even more glaring flaws in the ministry of the scribes and Pharisees because that's who he's talking about when he was talking about all these kinds of things. Matthew 23 helps us to know what type of ministry habits to avoid. Thirdly... Not taking care of those hidden things. We just got through talking about that a minute ago. You don't want anybody to know about. Those things that you should be putting away in your life. Things that are embarrassing. Things that are are shameful. um, Things that you don't want to talk about. Keeping a short sin list uh, will take care of that. But if you don't take care of those things, and there's things in your heart that you would be completely embarrassed if somebody knew, but you're not trying to take care of those things, then that's going to betray your conscience. It's going to undermine your integrity. It's going to take away the confidence you could have for the future. And then... Uh, from the life of Job, it was really cool. We can come back to uh, an immensely important confidence and conscience principle as we looked at Job's life, and that was number five. It is absolutely possible to pass through the most difficult times you can imagine and stay on track and retain your integrity and finish your race with a clear conscience. Regardless of what you may have to go through, difficult times is no hindrance to a confident future if we understand the process. If we understand that the Lord has taken you through whatever that thing may have been in your past, in your future, currently right now, as you go through that and you manage that in the way the Lord has has designed for it, there's no reason why you can't have a very confident conscience for the future and your integrity is intact. But basically, as we come through this, and as Paul's talking about this, we understand shepherding God's people of of all possible duties certainly requires integrity, which is part of the foundation of a good conscience, Uh, to preach the truth that one Live the truth. That's a demand. To call other people to follow the truth demands that one obey that same truth. And and that alone makes a ministry that as it ought to be. Whatever your ministry is, you're calling people to do something and you're desiring to do it too. And that makes it God-honoring. It makes it Christ-exalting and Holy Spirit-empowered. And that gives you the sense of why Paul mentions so many times a good conscience ministry that made manifest before the Lord and he approves it. Paul knew that that the people of God should expect to be ministered to by men of integrity. He knew that the church needed to be ministered to by men who pointed them to a final day of judgment. So live accordingly, and and he lived that way himself, and he lives that way himself. Integrity in spiritual leaders, integrity in ministers, integrity in pastors, Sunday school teachers, whatever your ministry is, is the thing that motivated Paul, and it's the crucial thing. And a man without it is a hypocrite. He's a tomb painted white. That's what he is. It's imperative. And a tomb of white is not very good company to be in. Now, let's look at our next section. If you would, Second Corinthians 5.12, he says this. We are not, again, commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us. Soon commending, we've seen that word before. We'll see it kind of in a review in a minute. But this is present, active, indicative. So here's the deal. Our reality is not to be constantly taking a stand, convincing you of our good reputation and our faithfulness. Paul says, I'm not going to continue to do that over and over again, trying to convince you that what I'm doing before the Lord is of good conscience and I'm doing what I should do among you. Okay? I'm not going to do that. Paul isn't going to keep doing it. That's what he says. We are not again commending ourselves to you. We're not going to do it. If somebody wants to believe something bad about him, nothing he's going to say is going to change that. But that doesn't change the fact that his conscience is clear. Just because somebody thinks that you're doing the wrong thing doesn't automatically make them right and you wrong. Not all, not all thoughts are created equal. Paul's heart comes through in this statement. He knows the nature of this church. A- and you know how they've treated Paul in the past because you've been with us if, with the study. And, and the unspoken responses from Paul is obvious. He just got through talking about a future judgment and he constantly reinforces this teaching to all the churches. And this is the second time for the Corinthians that he's talked about this. He knows how critical they are. He he, and he, he envisions the old criticisms coming up to the surface again. People evaluating him instead of evaluating themselves. Right? Making sure that they evaluate Uh, Those who are over them, rather than taking a good look at what they're doing. And so he says, all these things that we just talked about, they're not my bio, so that you'll accept me. That's basically it. I'm not telling you all this so that you'll say, oh, he must be a spiritual guy. And all that leads us is to this next principle, which is this. Confident and conscious principle number six. Here it is. Don't worry about it, everybody says. Your ministry of integrity will speak for itself and give the church a chance to recognize it for what it is and how it's done. That's what it comes down to as you're, as you're in ministry and you're over people. Listen, you can't worry about what everybody says and what everybody thinks. Paul says we're not committing ourselves to you again. We're not going to go through our list of accomplishments. We're not going to uh, d- dictate to you why you should be, why you should be uh, proud of us. We're, we're not going to do any of that. Paul's ministry of integrity is going to speak for itself. It's going to give the church a chance to recognize it for what it is and how it's done. When you think about Paul's position, it really doesn't matter what Paul says about his ministry and his authority. And that really kind of of goes across the board to every guy who's ever ministered anywhere in any church at any time. It doesn't really matter what he says about himself, about his authority, because whatever he says is just going to be construed as pride and haughtiness. I mean, if it's not taken at face value as this is who I am and why I do it, then it's just he's just proud and haughty and he's just full of himself. And Paul knows that that's how it is, see? So he just says, we are, here it is, giving you an occasion to be proud of us. Instead of being ashamed of Paul or critical of Paul, and, and of course Timothy and Titus, because those guys were all part of that church, uh, they have reason to be proud of him and, and all God has accomplished in him. I mean, realistically, this is this is Paul's true longing. He was proud of the faithful work he'd done among them. He loved them. He wanted them to understand this and revere him in the same way. Uh, and ultimately, it, didn't, it doesn't really matter as long as Paul has a clear conscience, but it'd be really nice to be appreciated. That's what Paul says. Be great for you to you recognize that what we 've done among you and, and every person who's ever ministered would like to be appreciated right but it's not it's not imperative that that happens but Paul says we're just giving you an occasion uh, that that might be the case and, and you really see the heartache of Paul here uh, among other places because we see the same kind of comment you can hear Paul say, you know do you have any idea how I 've labored over you you know all that I've suffered on your behalf like we saw in the early verses of of uh, this chapter everything the Lord has accomplished in me through my suffering for Christ's sake some of it at your hands right has made me the man I am and I can look back on my life with a clear conscience I had the integrity he said uh, to stick with it to stick with you to teach you and to counsel you and admonish you and warn you and he says uh, it'd be nice if you'd recognize us he just so wants that connection with him and he said basically the same thing uh, if you remember Second Corinthians chapter 1 verse 12 he said um, for our proud confidence is this Testimony of our conscience. Here it is. He goes, I can boast in the fact that I have done exactly what I'm supposed to do among you. You may not think that, you may have an idea about priorities and what I should have done, or whatever Paul says, but I have this proud confidence, I can boast, that's what that means. Proud confidence, I have boast in this, the testimony of our conscience. How is that, Paul? Well, that in holiness and godly sincerity, and not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. For we write nothing else than what you read and understand. In other words, we're not saying one thing and doing something else. We're not saying one thing to one church and saying something else to another church. It's completely opposite. We're just consistent over over the course of the ministry. And I hope you will understand until the end. Just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. And it always comes back to that, doesn't it? It always comes back to that day. What's the day of the Lord Jesus? Well, that's that last day when every believer will stand before the Lord and come under his scrutiny. In the day of the Lord Jesus, verse 14, Paul says, Just like I want you to pursue uh, a thorough understanding of my words until the end, uh, I want you to know that this is... The reality on that day, when, I, when we face Christ, and here Paul directs his readers' attention to this day of the Lord Jesus, that day, and we've looked at this over and over again, when every person's life and every person's work will be subject to divine scrutiny, and everything is weighed out, and everything's tested by fire, and the only things that last are the things that can survive the fire, gold, silver, costly stone. And in that connection, he says, I know you'll understand fully, so someday you'll know this, he says, as you've understood in part, that you can be proud of us as we can be of you. And this really just confirms that confidence principle, doesn't it, that we just got through looking at just a second ago. He's not really dwelling on it now, but in spite of everything he's endured, he has a clear conscience that he will be recognized by this church on the day of Christ. He's not going to worry about it. He's not going to worry about Every critic says he's just going to do the thing he's supposed to do and be faithful in it, and the integrity will come out in the end, and the conscience will come out clear in the end. And he's looking forward to being proud of them. This is a common theme for Paul. You see that hope for the church in Thessalonica two, just as an illustration. Verse nineteen he says, For our hope, for who is our hope, or joy, or crown of exaltation, and so he's asking a question that's going to be answered immediately, is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and our joy. So that was an excitement Paul could barely contain. He'd invested his life there. Christ would come. All his work would be his crown from Christ. The Lord would reveal all of it, just like it is. Whatever was built out of gold, silver, and costly stone would remain, and people could see it, and they would understand it clearly. Not shadowed by expectations, not shadowed by what somebody thinks somebody should do, whatever. Okay? And that's a great reality for every believer, see? We seem to see the same excitement for the church in Philippi in Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. He says, uh, therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Again, you know, a crown, all the labor worth it so that Christ would be glorified. And in our passage, which we're going to see in just a minute, part of that labor was teaching them all these things we just talked about. It's, It's in the way that they taught them, he taught them. And part of it was teaching them, uh, how to answer someone who has departed from the main thing. And, and Paul knows that there's a reward for that. And, and wouldn't it be wonderful, beloved, if you think about this, to live in such a way that some of the reward that the Lord says, behold, I'm coming quickly in Revelation twenty-two twelve, 12, and my reward is with me, some of that reward would be yours. See, To live in such a way that when he comes, the reward is given to you. What a, what a great focus Paul had. See? And so... It's a great focus that we can have. It is of primary importance to Paul. It needs to transfer into that primary importance for us, see? And that was the excitement Paul could barely contain. Christ would come. All all the work would be his crown from Christ, and all that work and the lives of those in the churches were his proud boast. He mentions it many times in the New Testament. But the interesting thing about the end of verse 14 is that this is the only one of a very few places, and one of the other ones is in our passage in verse 12, that we see the pride he expects his converts to feel in him on that day. He very rarely says that, but he says, Someday you, you'll have a pride in what I do. For, for his part, Paul will feel pride in his converts because they are the proof that he has successfully carried out his commission to bring about the will of the one who called him on the Damascus road. And what was that commission? Well, that was Romans chapter uh, 1, verse 4 through 5, where he says this, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, talking about Jesus, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, Here it is, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. That was Paul's commission. And so someday he's going to rejoice in that. He's going to rejoice in that many Gentiles came to faith because of his ministry. And he's very proud of the fact that the Lord has used him to do that and counted him worthy, even though he's the worst of sinners. And someday, he said, someday they'll recognize what he's done. The obedience of the faith, that's just that's just the outworking of true salvation. Receive grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. It's just another way to say that he has persuaded them, what? Concerning the fear of the Lord that someday they'll stand before him. Because obedience of the faith, what's that going to produce? Building material that's going to last. There's no way for you to build with building material that'll last if you're not conducting yourself in obedience to the faith in the areas that you uh, live out in your life. see All the different things that you do and all the ways that you do your thing and how you spend your day and all that stuff, all building. Building, building, building. What are you building with? If you're living in subjection to the obedience of the faith, if the sun is in direct orientation to the sundial, you're going to be fully informed in the direction that you need to go. See? It's just another way to say, you know, he's just persuading them concerning the fear of the Lord. Someday they'll stand before him. The obedience of the faith is the way they want to live. And he's looking forward to them being proud of him for that. And we don't appear to see this anywhere else except in Paul's letters, especially to this church in Corinth. And that just gives a pretty significant indicator of the coldness with which they regarded Paul that he longed for this day when they would appreciate the ministry that he had among them. The book of Hebrews is very Pauline sounding. Book of Hebrews chapter 13 verse 17 it says this. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, speaking of leaders in the church, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. So there's an accounting in the future where those who led the church bring a report of the church to Jesus. And the writer says, let them, that's those who lead the church, let them, Do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. What's that mean? Well, there will undoubtedly be both types of reports, good and bad, about the church. And no doubt Paul knew this very well. And then we see this very familiar statement. Verse 18, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good, what, conscience. Same word, right? Pray for us because we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. Pray for us. For we are sure that we have a good conscience. Paul, uh, whoever wrote uh, the Hebrew letter is very Pauline sounding. Pray for us because we have a good conscience. We've done what we're supposed to do. And he says, then submit to those who are over you. And you can see the church reacting to the statement, much like the Corinthian church probably would have. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah, you know, submit to you? Well, we can't wait to make a report of you. Except there isn't one. See, There's no report at the church to the, about the pastor to the Lord. There's only a report from the pastor about the church to the Lord. That's the only one we see. See? And the writer says, we're sure we have a good conscience. They, they've dealt with the church in such a way that they have a clear conscience. No matter what the individuals in the church uh, that the, the book of Hebrews is addressing may think about those who were over them, they haven't violated their fully informed conscience. See? Whatever they may think about those who led this church, those who led it hadn't violated their very important conscience. And it seems in the New Testament church, things are much the same among those who are followers of Christ. So if Paul lets the church know that his converts should feel pride in their apostle as they fully realize in that day all that they owe him for teaching them in the way that he did. And all this helps to make sense of Paul's hope expressed in the present context that the Corinthians will understand fully what they heretofore have only understood in part. See, and I think it's a good takeaway here at the end of, uh, of uh, at the end is that we can clearly see from all of Paul's comments that he was so looking forward to. The return of Christ. And here's the deal. You're not looking forward to the return of Christ if all your associations are not correct. Okay? Let me just... This is a secret. Okay? Perhaps that needs to be revealed. You won't be or perhaps shouldn't be looking forward to the return of Christ if you're not living in such a way as you're obedient to the faith. Because that day will not be a joyful day for you. It'll be a day with some sorrow in it. That's the whole point of it. See? Paul says, I'm looking forward to the day of Christ. Someday you'll recognize, he says, all that I did among you in the day of Christ. Well, that day's going to come. And you don't say that. Paul doesn't run right up to the Lord's throne and say, I'm, I'm open and transparent before you. And my conscience is clear. And in the day of Christ, I'm looking forward to this unless your associations are right. See, he's keeping a short sin list. He's making sure he's not hiding anything. He's not saying one thing and doing another. See? All the things are correctly oriented. And Paul was anticipating the coming of Christ because he knew it would be joy for him and he wanted it to be joy for them. See, and That's the whole point of the Hebrews passage. That day of Christ is coming. It's going to be a joy for those who are doing the ministry. He wants it to be a joy for the, those who are having the ministry done to them. See, And he knew his attitude was right and his heart was right and, and the joy would be his and he wanted theirs to be right so that the full joy would be theirs and much would remain of their life's efforts. So, his conscience was clear concerning what the Lord had called him to do. This kind of sums up what we just looked at. As an under rower, as a steward, he did what he was supposed to do. It just sums up that his conscience was clear in his testimony uh, to the watching world. His conscience was clear concerning how he discharged his duty in the church. And so, his integrity was intact, and he had no fear of any earthly accusation, and no fear even of the return of Christ. That's how clear his conscience was. See. Now, it's important to point out in this section, as a footnote, when he says, we are not again commending ourselves to you, is a very familiar statement uh, because he understands this church so well. Back in 2 Corinthians three one, he said much the same thing. He said, are we beginning to commend ourselves again or do we need as some letters of commendation to you and from you? See, again, same compound verb. That word soon, with or beside, and histame, to stand or establish, present active here, infinitive. In other words, do we need to keep doing this? In our passage, he says, we're not going to do this anymore. Right here, he's like, do we need to commend ourselves over and over? How long is this going to continue to go on? Do you need someone to speak on our behalf? Do you think I'm bragging about my own abilities? You, You think when I say what I just said, that I'm writing my own reference letter, you want a letter, he says, I'll give you a letter very next verse, you are our letter, written in our hearts. It wasn't an external document written within kind of introducing Paul. It was an internal document written in the lives that were changed and are being changed and bringing into submission to the faith and obedience to the faith, you know, all that. And he says, written in our hearts. That's how Paul feels about them. He loves them. Yes, there are people who gossip about him. Yes, there are people who are continually arguing with him. And this is a church where they couldn't get communion right and this is a church where everybody had a prophecy and everybody had a tongue and the services were out of control this is a church where they were factious and divisive but he says you're written in grapho where we get our word engraved you're engraved perfect passive in the past the lord has engraved you on our hearts from now on you're there when those lives were changed they were written by the lord on the heart of paul completed action. They're there from now on, regardless of the naysayers. Lives were changed and people were growing and maturing and the Lord made that clear to Paul. So Paul says, just take a sideways glance then, if you will, at the ones who are criticizing me and see what they think is important and what I have taught you is important. And that is basically what he says in the next part of our passage for today in Second Corinthians 5.12. This last part of the verse, he says, he says this, so we are not again, committing ourselves to you, But we're giving you an occasion to be proud of us, that so that what's he say? You will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. What's that mean? Well, just you'll know what to say when ministry is done differently than God has directed it to be done. Okay? There's plenty of opportunity for that in the modern church. If you're discerning at all, you you can certainly see uh, whether someone is motivated to persuade men of this future day of Christ, or they're motivated by making people feel good about themselves. So, you're going to know, Paul says, because I've been among you, you're going to know what to say when a ministry is done differently. And you will know when you have a teacher that isn't motivating you by reminding you of the judgment to come. And someday, maybe you'll be proud of us because, mark this, you have seen us do it correctly so you'll know how it should be done. That's really the essence of that. You've seen us do it. We've instructed you to know how it should be done, how you should be doing it in your own life. And so when you go somewhere and it's not done that way, it should be easy for you to see. And so this confidence in conscience principle number seven, if you want confidence for the future, teach the church discernment. Many, much of that is going to be just by modeling what's supposed to be done, but other parts are going to be by telling them what to watch out for. See, not, don't be brought in by this, this uh, feel-good type of of uh, ministry that just makes you all, very affirms everybody, everybody walks out feeling happy. Everybody, you know, th- that is not the focus of ministry. Church is where the saints meet. The New Testament is very clear about that. The saints come for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness that you be thoroughly furnished for every good work. And you walk out of here and you do your ministry. See, church is not made to be attractive to non-believers. As I understand the first letter that we read, it is the smell of death for those who are perishing. Nobody's waking up over here in this neighborhood and saying, if they're not a believer, I wonder what's going on at Berean this morning. Maybe we should go. Unless someone who lives next to them has witnessed to them and began the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. Nobody's thinking that, beloved. And we should never function as a church in such a way that we make it attractive for non-believers to come in because then we've lost our complete mission of warning believers for what? A future day, an appointment with the Lord where He'll scrutinize everything that you've done and how you've lived. Not that He's gonna cast you away to hell because all of your guilt and your sin has been placed on Christ at the cross. What? For how you built on the foundation of Christ. And that's gonna be tested by fire and all that's, all that's left will what you enter into, into eternity with. Whatever glory, whatever uh, honor, whatever crown, whatever's left, that's what you enter into eternity with to glorify God forever. Let's see? So this is super important. Okay? If you want to be confident for the future, teach the church discernment. Do it by modeling it as you do your ministry. Focus on the application of those verses that you're. What does the word say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? And do it by instruction. Tell them what to watch out for. Remember Paul's comment. It's interesting in Acts chapter 20, verse 29. He says this He says, um, He's getting ready to depart this area. He's not going to come back. And. He knows this. He's getting close to the end of his life. He's going to go to prison shortly and stay there for a very long time. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things. So not only will people come in from the outside that you don't know and they'll say things they shouldn't say and ravage the flock, but also inside the churches, which there are always unbelievers in the church who, uh, if unfortunately they rise to any level of leadership, you're in big trouble. So even among your own selves, they'll speak perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. So I'm telling you this so that you will watch for it. So to know what to say. See, Paul just said, I want you to be able to know what to say to those who are more concerned about what it looks like than actually what it is, Right? So be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. That's a marvelous thing to say. I warned you, it will happen. Be on the alert. You know what to do. I've told you, and now I'm going to go and I'm just committing you to the Lord and to his word. Stay in it. And you'll stay on course. How important was it to the church, for, for Paul, for the church to have discernment concerning false teachers? And, and what's the easiest way to know that they are false from out of our own passage? Well, what is it? Um, you'll have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. And we're concerned about what it looks like than how it is. Faithfulness to persuade men and women about the importance of the coming judgment and to live accordingly is being faithful to your calling. It's the right orientation to the light. Okay? It'll show the stark difference between false and true, and it builds the spiritual building with gold, silver, and costly stones. Now, let's look quickly at verse 13 in the time we have left. So I want to get a, a foothold here. It's an interesting statement from Paul. In 2 Corinthians 5.13, look at your copy of God's Word. and I put, these, I put these things on the screen for your convenience to help you kind of get your takeaways. That no, There's no door on the back of the bulletin. But whatever, if you're using a tablet, your phone, uh, your Bible, my encouragement to you is have it open. Uh, You can read ahead, you can go back and read what we just covered, you can really get your orientation well with the Word of God and what's been said, and uh, we can't cover all of that every time and everything we've said, so I just encourage you to be there. So be there, look, in 2 Corinthians 5.13, Paul says this, very interesting statement. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it's for you. Now stop right there. Paul, as we've seen, is very focused on these very few things, a very one-tracked, Relentless, really, in the presentation of the gospel and, and a ministry among the churches dominated by what? Persuading men to obedience to the faith out of a holy reverence for a future judgment, right? Those are the two things that kind of consume Paul. Everything about his life was that, okay? He wasn't really concerned about where he lived. He wasn't concerned about whether he got, uh, you know, some kind of support from the church. He wasn't concerned about, you know, the persecution that happened to him. If he could get back up, he got back up and kept on trucking, Okay? So his whole life, since his redemption, was focused very tightly on these things. He wasn't concerned about his welfare. He wasn't concerned about his health, where he laid his head, or the sentence of death that we saw earlier that was always on him, okay? he didn't consume him. It was like, I don't think I can go out today. I'm just kind of worried that I won't make it back. I mean, that wasn't part of Paul's conscience thought. He's like, I'm not going out. He's like, well, the Lord can raise the dead. So if he's not done with me, he'll just raise me back up until they take my life. And it would seem then from this verse and that perhaps because of this singular focus that the apostle had even been accused of insanity. Uh, people are like, dude, you are way too focused on a very few things. I mean, come on. Or of being a fanatic of various forms of some of the mental disturbance. The the, word, the verb is existamen. It's aristactive indicative. It means to be out of position. That's the literal translation of it. Moved off a point. So They say, um, for if we are beside ourselves, if we are moved off a point, that's the idea, kind of a navigation principle, moved out of position, literally. If you look at us and think, this dude is not right. I mean, he's like completely focused on these things. And so, if you're looking at us and saying that, what they're really saying is that at, at some point, some who observed Paul were claiming that he had taken leave of his census, that's kind of I think the the way to to come out of that verse. The normal pattern of behavior that would be considered normal human behavior didn't describe Paul on the whole. Uh, they many of them probably thought he was unstable, traveling beyond the grounds of discretion, perhaps doing things that didn't seem reasonable. Going back into a city that had just stoned you, and they thought you went you died, and then you came back in, you got up, and that just doesn't seem right. Of course going back to, to, going back to churches planted in cities where there were riots and, you know, he was stoned and beaten and all that kind of stuff. That just doesn't, that's not part of the normal human behavior. So they said, Paul, you you know, I think you've taken leave of your senses. And First Corinthians chapter 2.14, he says this very thing. He says, and and of course, Paul would probably agree. I should say this. They would say, Paul, you, you're you're kind of off point. You're not acting like a normal human would act. And I think Paul would agree with him. And I think that's precisely what he said in 1 Corinthians 2.14. He says, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. The things that drive me, Paul says, um, are going to seem foolish if you're unredeemed. Um, And he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. And, And, you know, just a few sentences later, he'll defend this behavior by pointing out, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature right that's coming up in just a few passages a few verses away from where we are now if anyone's in Christ he's a new creature the old things passed away behold new things have come there's a whole new orientation for life if you're a new creature see you don't you don't have the same patterns that you had before he simply says that if he is bes- so I think the way to come out of this passage it seems kind of complicated at first I think it's simply he says if he's beside himself if he's off point or if it seems like he's uh, moved away from where he should be it is for God that's the that's the whole idea if I seem like I'm I'm not acting like a normal person would act, I'm focused on some very few things, and it doesn't really matter what else happens, it's for God. Anything that might seem like insanity to his critics was really a deep-hearted devotion to the Lord. He was consumed with a passion for the things of God, and if, on the other hand, he was of sound mind, it was for the sake of the Corinthians. In other words, if I'm acting normal, I'm doing that for you, right? I've become all things to all people that by all means I may save some. He, he had a way of making sure that... he you know, he could conform to make them understand that he still loved them. He was, he was passionate about some certain thing, so passionate, so focused that they said, man, he's off point. He's, he's, not, he's moved away from, he's out of position. Paul says if that's the case, then it was a zeal for God. You know, expressed through his single-minded pursuit of the loss for the gospel or his fear of the Lord, which prompted the major motivation of his life, and that was the BMC judgment. Or... Either way, it's the welfare of his fellow believers. The normal things that he did, functioning in the world, making a living as a as a tanner or a tent maker, those kinds of things. That's the normal things he did. Uh, that was whatever they considered normal behavior. That was for his fellow believers. And mark this: uh, this accusation of exstymen, exstymen being off point. We see it in the scriptures more often than perhaps you realize. And I want to give you some illustrations because we're going to come up with another point here. Uh, in, in confidence and conscience in Matthew chapter 11, verse 16, this is a great illustration of this very thing. So, but to what shall I compare this generation? So John is speaking here. Um, is it like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children and say, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We did it. We sang a dirge. You didn't mourn. And so what are they saying? So, um, John's just saying, it doesn't matter what we do. It's the opposite of what you think we should do. We, we can't please you, right? Um, you think we should do some certain thing. We're single-minded. We're focused on, on giving the gospel out. We're focused on the kingdom. And you think we should do all these other things that, that please you, see? For John came neither eating or drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a glutless man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Let's stop right there. Was John a zealous man? Yep. Wasn't too concerned about where he slept, right? John the Baptist, he slept wherever he slept, right? He wasn't too concerned about what he wore. Camel hair shirt, that doesn't sound too comfortable in the no. summer. Hair's wild, no doubt. Wasn't too concerned about what he ate, right? Locusts, honey, it's not what I'm craving at the end of church, wasn't concerned about that. What was he concerned about? He was concerned about a kingdom, wasn't he? Concerned about the kingdom. Preaching the kingdom of God that was coming. The kingdom of heaven. He looked straight at the Pharisees and said, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Who does that, who's that sound like? It sounds exactly like Jesus, right? You're a brood of vipers. You're a bunch of bones in a tomb. And so everybody says, he's a nut job. He's got a demon right what about jesus would you say he was zealous for the kingdom yep did he say exactly what needed to be said yes he did he looked right out at the pharisees and called them a whitewashed tomb full of dead men's bones he told the followers that of the you know that the widow who put in two pennies into the temple offering plate had given more than every other rich person that had come through because she gave all that she had and he shocked everybody he just said exactly what was the truth right uh, i tell you you know it's not if you uh, if you have a relationship, an intimate relationship with a woman that you've committed adultery, you just think about it, you have. See? He, I mean, he just changed everything, right? He told exactly what God's perspective of all that stuff was. He ate and drank uh, like normal people do, didn't he? And everybody says, oh, he's out of his mind. You know, alcohol's gotten into him, and, and he's contro- that's controlling everything that he's doing, right? You, uh, you know how a person is drunk, and, you know, uh, how they are, that's how he is. You know, they're crazy. They've lost balance. They've lost touch with reality. They don't know what's going on. They said of John the Baptist, he's controlled by a, a demon. They said of Jesus, he's controlled by alcohol. That's how they explained away the zeal, the passion, and the truth, see? It's not that uncommon. And that's become much more common in this hedonistic culture that we live in. I remember reading a news report about the ABC TV show called The View not that long ago, host Joy Bahar. She bashed Vice President Mike Pence's faith and, and his right belief that Jesus speaks to believers through his word. And she called it what? She called it mentally ill. He's mentally ill. He hears voices. Right? It's, it's, not, it's, not that hard to, it's not that hard to see the parallels. Right? If we're out of our mind, it's for the Lord. Remember Matthew 12, verse 24, they said about Jesus, this man casts out demons by Beelzebub, the father of the demons. Jesus is committed to delivering people from uh, besetting sin, committing to delivering people from demon possession. He's going around. He's doing the work of the kingdom, and uh, he's filled with Satan. That's how they explain Jesus. He's mad because he's filled with Satan. Mark chapter 3, verse 20. Jesus comes home. A crowd gathers again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. There's such a big crowd around his home, he couldn't even get in to take any kind of meal. So he's out there healing and he's doing all these things. There's so much need. And his own people heard of this. They went out to take custody of him. Can you imagine? Is Jesus out doing the work of the kingdom? He can't get into his own house to eat. So our, you know, our people will take care of this. He's he's out of his mind. He's lost his senses. He he's got so so many people there. He can't even eat his own. Get into his own home and eat. And his own people, when they heard this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he's lost his mind. He's lost his senses. His senses. People should people who should have known better, right? about what was going on in Jesus' life and what his passion was, said he's lost his senses. Pharisees and scribes, the leaders, the spiritual leaders of the people at the time, he's filled with a demon or he's drunk. That's why he's so passionate about this, see? You know what they want to do? They want to take custody of him and put him away somewhere, lock him up because he's gone nuts. That's the only way they could explain him from a human perspective. And there were many more examples of that. Chapter 26, verse 24, we'll finish with this one. Paul had just given a really powerful, straightforward, clear message of the gospel and his calling, what he was supposed to do with the Gentiles, bring him into the obedience of the faith. I mean, it was super powerful in Acts 26. And, and here's the response, Acts 26, verse 24. And it says, um, while Paul was saying this in his defense, so he's telling why he was locked up to begin with, his passion and the things he was doing, and the people, the leaders didn't understand. They locked him up and wanted to kill him. Uh, Festus said in a loud voice, now he was under severe uh, severe um, conviction about all that he had said. But Festus says in a loud voice, Paul, you are what? What's it say? Out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind. Most excellent Festus, but utter words of sober truth. I'm not being controlled by alcohol. I'm not controlled by something else. My words are sober and I'm telling you exactly how it is. And it appears this is exactly what, what's going on here, I think, in Second Corinthians chapter five, verse thirteen. If we're out of our minds, it's for God. What do you mean? Well, if you think we've taken leave of our senses by our single minded devotion to the kingdom, then no it's for God that we do this. This is how we understand the Lord desires for us to function. If I'm passionate, and if I'm zealous, and if I'm dogmatic, and if I'm committed to persuading men about the judgment, it's for God. My conscience is being informed by his word, which he has exalted to the level of his own name. And so my orientation to the light is correct, and it's casting the correct shadow. It's the truth of God I'm dealing with. It is a stewardship. And so there was this passion in the delivery of it, and that is our eighth confidence and confidence, conscience principle. And here it is. A wholehearted commitment to inform your conscience with the word of God. And then, to catch this. And then live in harmony with that conscience will cause some people to question your sanity. Even in your own family. That's happened to me. You are nuts. What, what are you even doing? So, don't think that, you know, living in such a way... Committed to what the Word of God says and then letting that inform your conscience and then living in harmony with that conscience, don't think that's going to make you friends of everybody, okay? When they say, they question your sanity, they may help affirm the confidence you'll have for the future. When somebody says, you are, you are completely committed to this, it's like you've got nothing else going on. You have confidence for the future that you used up your life for the kingdom. And that puts you in pretty good company. If we understand what the New Testament just got through saying. Peter said it this way to his readers. And with this we're done. He said, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Why? So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers. When they tell you you're, you're a drunkard. You're possessed by demons. You're off your rocker. You've moved off your point. Okay? You're not acting like normal people act. They may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God. When? When? In the day of visitation. When's that going to happen? Probably not right now. But someday, it's the same idea Paul had, right? In the day of our Lord Jesus, you'll be proud of me. I'm okay with what I'm doing now. I'm okay that I don't have that connection with you, that you don't think very highly of me. In fact, you might think I'm kind of off my rocker. I'm all right with all of that. Someday, my conscience is clear. Someday, you'll recognize what I did. See? And I think that's the same thing that Peter is saying. You know, You're going to do stuff. People are going to think, man, you are... Why are you committed to this? Why are you living that way? Why, are you, you know, you barely have enough to cover what you do. You know, pastors all around the world, they labor in such a way that um, they barely can cover what they need to cover, right? And people will question them, like, what are you doing? You know, it's okay to be a Christian. Just, you don't have to be like that. Observe your good deeds glorify God in the day of visitation. Because listen, beloved, if you're blending in well with the world around you, that does not bode well for a confident conscience for the future. And that does not put you in very good company. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. It's our desire to really allow the Lord to assimilate these thoughts in our mind just for just for a few minutes just concentrate on those things that the word has said Father we desire to know what your word says what it means by what it says and how it applies to us and so this is that point as you've been working through uh, the time together in the word as as our folks read together with me what your word says I pray that you give them discernment understanding the orientation of their life particularly the last two points as we think about Um, perhaps what the world would say about how we live and whether we're blending in well or, or whether we look a lot different than the average person who is unredeemed. So Father, it's our desire, of course, to live in such a way that our conscience is clear. Our integrity is intact even when no one sees we're doing what we're supposed to do. It's not that we don't sin. No one is saying that. Even Paul, who we would evaluate as very spiritual person, evaluated himself as the chief of sinners. Romans 7, what I want to do, I don't do, and that thing I don't want to do, that I do. There's this constant struggle because we're in the flesh, and that's where that beachhead is established. Oh, we long for a glorified body that's in perfect harmony with the new us on the inside, but until that day, Lord, help us just to live with a fully informed conscience, dealing with the sin issues as they come up, constantly repenting and purging ourselves of things that are shameful, so we can live in such a way, motivated by the right things, that we might build the right with the right kind of material and we might teach others in our ministry the fear of the Lord and persuade them of the importance of that day correspondingly to live a life in such a way that there'll be lots left over after that day of scrutiny with the Lord. Lots left over in which to glorify Jesus, to recognize his, his work in everything we did, to, to acknowledge him and to exalt him in such a way that he's worthy. And we reflected that by the way we lived. And we laid up things that lasted, which means we worked for the kingdom. And people might all, not always think the best of us, but we worked for the kingdom. And in such a way, then, glorified the Lord and vindicated all that he had done by our actions. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. And all God's people said,